0: Welcome to Try Me. I'm Robin Kenny, your host, and I'm here with Kristen Tate. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Robin.
0: So exciting. Um, I want to congratulate you first of all on your newest, your latest book. Thank you um, so much. You're welcome. So I'll just start right off. The Liberal Invasion of Red State America is the title of your your latest book. My first question is, I'm really curious about the issue that you present like right in the title itself. Um, So the question I guess I would toss to you would be, should I be worried about red states maintaining their value systems or their voting patterns? And how serious is this problem that you tackle in your book?
1: It's a very serious problem. Republicans are hyper-focused all the time on immigration at the southern border. And while that's obviously a very important issue, domestic migration is actually what's shaping the political map right under our noses. And up until recently, this topic really didn't get much interest. Um, I grew up in New Hampshire, just north of where you are, and all you massholes move up to New Hampshire and then vote in favor of the policies that you left behind in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, In the 90s, my family moved to a really small town in New Hampshire called Grantham. It was super Republican, low property taxes, just a great patriotic little town. And over the last two decades, we've watched that town really turn into a solid blue liberal town. And most of that is because of Boston expats who move up there and then they vote in favor of liberal policies that made Massachusetts unbearable. Um, So I grew up watching this trend unfold and dealing with the consequences of this in my own hometown. That's what kind of sparked my interest in the topic. However, um, later in life, when I moved to Texas, I saw the same thing happening here. I saw California folks moving into Texas and Mass and having really drastic impacts on the elections, especially in Dallas, Houston, Austin, and San Antonio, the big cities, which are absorbing mm-hmm. extremely high numbers of Californians and some New Yorkers in high numbers as well. So it's a trend I've been watching closely. It's having serious impacts. I mean, Texas could be a swing state this year, largely because of this domestic migration and uh it's only sped up this trend of moving from red from blue states to red states because of covid you know now people want to escape these big blue cities with exploding crime rates uh, and they can people can work remotely for the first time, and a lot of families are saying why would I stay in these big cities? You know, it's it's, it's expensive. The, the public school systems are failing in many cases. Crime is through the roof. A lot of families are scared to leave their apartments. And now these liberal cities are talking about defunding their own police departments. I mean, Bill de Blasio wants to cut at least a billion dollars from the NYPD. So I wrote this book over a year ago now. Uh, it came out this year, but like most of my research was from 2019. But now because of COVID, this trend is going to just speed up tenfold.
0: That's unbelievable. And it's actually pretty scary. Um, So I guess that answers my question. It's a serious problem. And you have a real life example of it that you watched unfold before your own eyes and your family's eyes. And I want to apologize because it's not my fault that all the Massachusetts people (laughs) ruined everything for me.
1: (laughs) You know, it's funny because a lot of people leave Massachusetts or California or, or New York Because the the costs are high and they say, oh, well, I can have a lower quality of life in New Hampshire or Texas or or Florida, but they're not thinking about it in terms of politics. So they'll move to these places and then they'll just vote Democrat because that's what they've always done. You know, people don't really think about politics in that kind of active way when they move, they don't, they don't often think, oh, well, maybe it's more affordable here and maybe the quality of life is better because Democrats aren't running these places. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're simply moving because of quality of life issues and costs of living without making that connection. So my book was in large part to help people understand, look, there is a direct correlation between the places that are really pleasant to live and lower cost and Republican governorship. And then, you know, on the other side, the places that are increasingly terrible to live And increasingly expensive, increasingly dangerous, and Democrats at the helm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because I grew up thinking of New Hampshire in this sort of cliched way. Live free or die. Um, We've got guns and we can do whatever we want. And a lot of us are farmers. I just never pictured New Hampshire as like crunchy at all.
1: It's crazy. You know, I think Uh, We have an entirely Republican, or sorry, we have an entirely Democratic state house at this point. The only Republican left is the governor. And uh, we are, I think, a few years away from an income tax and a sales tax. I mean, right now, New Hampshire has no income tax, no sales tax. Mm-hmm. I think that is going to change pretty soon, uh, because these liberals get in there, they want all these programs, and you've got to pay for it somehow. So there are whispers at this point of an income tax, and I, I think that the second the Republicans lose the governor's mansion, that's probably going to become a reality. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this this also impacts not just the cost of living. Not not just the politics, but the culture of these places. That little town that I'm from, Grantham, I went to a uh, a town hall meeting in the town uh, last year, a year and a half ago, and the school there is very small. It's an elementary school in the town, and there are only a few dozen kids in the school. There was one special needs kid, and we had a special ed teacher for that child. Then that child got older and was no longer in the school. So the school was, the the, the town was holding a meeting about this person's position, the special ed teacher. Now, you know, I want people to have jobs, and uh, this woman was very sweet, but the government does not exist to employ people. So right. the question was, are we going to keep this woman here even though there are no special ed kids left, or are we going to terminate the position? And all of these liberals who move up there, they see the government as an employer. They see the government as the source of all good. And they showed up and they rallied for this woman. They protested. They, they screamed on the floor of the town hall. And in the end, this woman got to keep her taxpayer-funded job even though there were no special ed students for her to teach. So this is the kind of mindset. You know, it's it's not about oh, I wanted this person fired. It's just the mindset of the government exists to provide for everybody. The government is the jobs provider, um, and that's that's really the way the things are going up there, in large part because of these transplants who aren't familiar with the native New Hampshire way of doing things. You know, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps work ethic up there. Uh, People in New Hampshire who are natives, for the large part, want the government to stay the hell out of their lives, out of their businesses. They just want to be left alone. And now that's all really
0: starting to change. Uh, By the way, that phrase according to AOC does not exist. One cannot pull oneself out by, up She, by she found
1: out that you literally cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. She was completely, you know, dumbstruck Blabber. by that idea.
0: Yeah, it's like, that's like AOC science for you. <laughs> exactly. Um, so to switch gears for just a minute and get into another area of your expertise, um, government spending, which we touched upon just now, um, what are some ways, and I think a lot of people assume the government overspends and could cut spending and lower taxes, but they don't really think about the specific ways. Uh, what would you say about, you know, what, what could the government be doing um, at any level to lower taxes or cut spending that they're not doing? Well, the first
1: thing we need to do is just cut spending anywhere we can, and there are lots of places we can do that. You know, the tax cuts were great. I love the tax cuts passed by Donald Trump and the Republicans, but you can't just cut taxes and not stop spending. And unfortunately, this administration has been really great in a lot of ways, but it has not been great on spending. The Trump administration has actually spent more than the Obama administration. So that money has to come from somewhere, and right now we're just racking up debt, Look, above the tax cuts. I want more of that. But we've got to also cut spending. You can't have it both ways. So I would just urge folks to look at your budget in your town. I mean, it's not just a federal government problem. This is yeah. happening at the town level, at the state level. A lot of these cities and states are not being run with responsible leaders. That's why you see New York City and Chicago and all these other places now demanding federal bailouts. They literally want citizens in fiscally sound states like Texas, Oklahoma, and Florida bailing out their fiscally irresponsible decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would urge people to look at your local budgets because looking at federal budgets, I mean, there's not a whole lot any of us can do about that other than vote in representatives who share our world views. So I would just really urge people, look at how your town is actually spending money. Where is that money going? That mm-hmm. is where we can each make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's very concerning in a lot of places across the country, especially with pensions. If you look at pensions and overtime scams, I mean, most of your city's budget, doesn't matter where you live, most of it's going to pensions and and bloated salaries for, for city and state workers.
0: When you hear some of these salaries, like, it blows your mind. And, yeah, and how do I
1: tax the My second book, I wrote about uh, a lot of crazy examples. For, for example, there's a train conductor in Boston who makes like 300 grand <laughs> and the guy works only like every other week and he's retiring with a totally fat pension and he's not an outlier. There are lots of people like this. They figure out how to game the system with overtime mm-hmm. and they do it with impunity and there's just no, no reforming the system because of the unions.
0: Well, and unions are a huge problem, because I was just going to say, I, against everything in me, I have to bring this up, because I so want to support the police right now, and I do, but I can't ignore the fact that I was just thinking, as you're talking about all of this over time, there was a big scandal in Boston with the state police as well, and just, you know, people lying about when they're working, and, you know, it doesn't stop there. So, uh, yeah, to look locally, I think, is really important. I think, actually, this covid situation has made people look at their at least their their state and local governments more yeah. than in my lifetime. I don't remember a time where I've heard the word governor so many times in the news. <laughs> you know, it's like every other minute. And so the focus is now unfortunately in some ways but fortunately in others on these yeah. state officials and I think a lot of them are being exposed for being you know, at best weak leaders. Yeah, if there's any silver lining from COVID, that's certainly it. Yeah, people I are getting upset lately, so.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think another thing a lot of people don't understand but should, which is uh, uh, an important part of this puzzle, is the fact that, Income taxes actually make up less than half of each of our personal tax burdens. Cities and states are finding many other ways to tax us. I mean, every time you eat at a restaurant, fly on a plane, take a bus, go see a movie with friends, have a drink at a bar, almost anything you do other than breathe you are taxed for that. And they find crazy ways of making taxes appear as important sounding fees. I'll give you an example. If you look at your cell phone bill, you'll see, a line, you'll see a bunch of line items for various fees that are all basically taxes. They act in the same function. One of those line items is called a 911 fee. Well, you think, oh, that's, I, I don't mind paying that. It's going to 911 services for emergency services. Well when it was instated in the early 90s that's exactly where the money went they updated the 911 system and then what did they do they kept that 911 line item there and now it just exists as a way to funnel money to state General fund, so they can spend it on anything, but they keep the 911 fee title because it sounds important. And that's just a little example, but you can go through nearly any bill you pay and you will see them stacked with these kinds of fees, but they function just like taxes. Almost all of them funnel your money back to state and city coffers, and uh, it's really dishonest. You know, if you're going to tax us, call a tax a
0: tax. The more control you have, is locally and look around and even driving through my town today and everybody's talking about it I live in a, a suburb of Boston and it's kind of like you know up and coming I guess you'd say it's very hipster now it's not really my scene but uh they're redoing the like the downtown was fine the rotary was fine they they're just digging things up for yep. no reason and they're like people are like I can't even like I'm gonna hit the curb like I can't park and it's just like really bad decision-making. Why are we spending this money? Why are we spending it right now? Like, what are you doing?
1: Create jobs. And this goes back to the idea that the government's place is to create jobs, when really the government should just get out of the way and Mm -hmm. let the private sector do that, because the private sector does it better.
0: Much, much, much better. I definitely agree with that. (laughs) So... Going back to the far left radical agenda um, and these sort of um, liberals moving into red states, it all kind of ties together. um, But to look at the bigger picture right now um, in the country, we're fighting something very weird. Um, There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of, uh, there's like a desire to destroy our history. Um, Joe Biden recently said that he wants to transform our country. Like, we don't know what transform means. We're assuming it comes from that that squad level kind of far leftist democratic socialism, which is socialism. They're all socialists, admittedly so, uh, if you listen to what they say. So, I mean, how do we fight against that? And I heard, um, not Tucker Carlson, who was Greg Gutfeld say that he's worried that the silent majority uh, doesn't exist as much as we think it does. I hope, and I tend to disagree with that. I think most normal people are just quiet because like, what, what are we going to do until it comes time to vote? Um, so what are your thoughts on, you know, this new, um, this new normal, this transformation that the left is talking about?
1: You know, the left wins every battle incrementally. We are now talking about and entertaining ideas seriously now that two years ago seemed totally insane. Mm-hmm. They win these battles through the culture in, incrementally. And I actually tend to agree with Greg Gottfeld. And it's very sad because I have a lot of friends who are conservative leaning uh, people who are falling for this leftist stuff. Yeah. Uh, for example, I have a Catholic friend who is very conservative, has three kids, and she's making all these posts online about Black Lives Matter and I'm teaching my kids to be anti-racist. And it's because she's assuming naively that the left is coming to the table with good faith arguments. They're not. She thinks Black Lives Matter is about Black Lives mattering. Of course we all think that Black Lives Matter. Nobody right. doesn't think that besides, you know, the five KKK members yeah. in the country. Right. It's Not about whether or not Black Lives Matter. BLM is a radical organization with a misleading name that wants to completely tear down the system and implement Marxism. People yeah. don't understand that they are fooled by the name. And I am very concerned that more people... Uh, are slowly falling for this as they shove this ideology down our throats, again, incrementally. I have people now saying, uh, you know, people who two years ago were very conservative are now saying, well, you know, maybe we should pay reparations. Oh, well, you know, maybe we should end qualified immunity for cops. Oh, well, you know, maybe we should uh, tear down Columbus statues. It's ridiculous, but... And there very
0: are a lot of normal what I thought were like normal thinking people with like, uh, logical brains that are now saying like, well, you know, I think maybe the statue should come down. Or is it like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not against an argument on any one particular statue being changed or whatever, but I don't, the destruction of property and just tearing them down ad nauseum for no reason with no research as to the meaning behind them. I mean, they, they're tearing down statues. That they, it's a crime. It's a crime. It's anarchy. Exactly. And I love what you said about BLM because I, I, you know, I follow a lot of Black conservatives and independent thinkers who are saying things that, you know, you or I might be nervous to say, um you know, uh and I'm just like, everyone is look at the webpage. All you have to do with Black Lives exactly. Matter is look at the webpage. It's They're about us. Bigger. Yeah, They're the about big. us section, I think it's about like four or five paragraphs in about, um you know, disrupting the nuclear family that whole that whole portion there and you read on and you read on and you do you're like this is what i learned about as marxism and so, i mean there's they're not shy about it mm-hmm. um and then you I have these, well, these these the, you know these a lot of women <laughs> a lot of white women in the suburbs who put up these black lives. i see them everywhere because really the women.
1: white women in the suburbs and a lot of people are are coming at this with a very reasonable mindset. They aren't racist. They want to be inclusive. So do I. I mean, I I want a more equal society. Of course I despise racism. Of course I think George Floyd's death was despicable, awful, and wrong. Of course, of course. But we need to understand what BLM is. BLM is not calling for equality. BLM doesn't want a brighter, stronger America. They want anarchy, they want to overthrow the system. So we need to understand what we're dealing with and I don't think a lot of people get it yet.
0: I don't either, and I, and like I, I tried to explain, I usually just avoid it now socially, but like I tried to explain it's not the phrase that I have a problem with, it's not the sentiment. I love the right. sentiment, black lives That's do well. matter and black communities matter and black communities aren't being you know, treated as well as they should be because the poor leadership again at a local right. and state level and I just, it's like, I can't, when I say that, it just kind of like, like, I, what do you mean all lives matter? That's so, that's so rude. You're, you're racist. It's like, no, um, it's not the sentiment. It's the organization itself. And I actually had one person say to me, I didn't even know there was an organization
1: hmm.
0: and still a it. Lot of people
1: still like, well, I didn't even know that, but whatever.
0: So it's like, they don't, they don't even really want to look into it, but that's the problem when hashtags and, and like these viral movements, you've got these people who, who, you know, they subscribe to it, but they're not political people normally. So they're not the people who are going to look on different news sites and and say like, Hey, what's really going on here? They're just going to hear the the sound bites and then read the headlines and just be all in and Black Lives Matter, BLM, the organization, 100% knows that. And of
1: course, Of course, Um. it's really sad. I think another thing that's happening is the country has never been more divided. We've never been more partisan. So Mm -hmm. people aren't necessarily interested in actually solving problems. You know, instead of saying, okay, George Floyd's death was horrible. Uh, There are other incidents like this. What can we do to solve this? You know, if they were really interested or even frankly, conservatives were really interested in solving problems, we would come to the table and we would pass criminal justice reform. But I don't think it's about that. I really don't. I think this is about sowing divide and yep. it's about tribalism and partisanship like we've never seen before.
0: It is unfortunate because we could be having so many great conversations. I see a lot of like college age individuals uh, you know on social media posting things like you know unfollow me if you know these very angry hateful yes. if you you know vote for you know who unfollow me now you're a racist and I I wanted to be like uh, think before you post because that's in this little radical like college world that you live in everyone agrees with you you're not thinking about you know your grandmother or your neighbor or you know because these kids aren't like fully developed to realize that okay I might not want to put that message out there and it's then I start to think it's the education system especially at the collegiate level so that was another thing I wanted to pick your brain about a little bit. I basically, I see this, there's there's two ways to handle the indoctrination and the far left stuff going on in college campuses. And that is one, you know, donors, parents, families start saying, we don't care about the name Harvard you know, we don't want our kids going there. It's about independent minded kids saying, you know, we don't want to go to Berkeley because we don't want to support what they're doing. And they're, you know, shutting down free speech. And then the other option is don't let them win. Don't do that. Go to whatever college you want and fight from within. But the problem with the fighting from within is that they're canceling people and they're firing professors. So I was just curious what you think the future of higher education looks like in the next 5 to 10 years.
1: Well, I I don't know what it looks like. I can say that I think if you're a concerned parent who can't afford private school before the college level, most of you know the development of kids ideology happens in the home. Mm. And parents have a great responsibility to be teaching their children how to think independently, how to form their own opinions, how to reason, Um, because unless the teachers unions are broken up, I really don't see much change, uh, you know, in K through 12 education, at least. We're Mm -hmm. always going to have these poor teachers. Meanwhile, you know, you have these school systems going really light on STEM and really hard on the soft sciences, Mm -hmm. and um, kids are just, are graduating from high school totally unprepared for practical jobs or careers, and then they go off to college, and it's just four more years of the same. So I, I, frankly, I, I see it getting worse in some ways. I do have hope in other ways, though. I think you're going to see a lot more universities like Liberty University, uh, try to try to cater to the kids who don't want to go to these leftist, uh, you know, these leftist universities. So perhaps we'll see more right of center type universities spring up to kind of give these leftists a run for their money. Uh, there's certainly a demand for, for these kinds of places.
0: And that's, that phrase, a run for their money, I think is so important because even in, in blue states where you feel like you can't win, I also think it's really important for people to run for office and with a different perspective than the far left norm that we get now. Um, Massachusetts, it's, I mean, not everyone, obviously, in Massachusetts, but the Cambridge area, the Liz Warren, you know, that whole group. Um, but I think conservatives or independent minded libertarians, they don't want to run for office. Local office because they don't want to deal with people digging stuff up from their past. They don't want to deal with all that kind of nonsense. And we have really some of the coolest people, and I've talked to people about this. Some of the coolest people you'll know in your life have a little bit of a, of a past or a story. Yeah, right. And those people are like politics, like you said, Kristen. We're so divided right now. Politics is so nasty, even at a local level now, which is yeah. weird. Um, that people like good, smart, strong-minded people don't want to run. So you know, I I, I think we need to sort of. Uh, urge people to run and support, you know, grassroots campaigns within our states.
1: Absolutely. The thing is, cancel culture is going to become so extreme, it already is becoming so extreme, that eventually everyone's just going to be canceled, and none of it's going to matter. And I actually hope we get to that point. Because then nobody's going to listen to the cancel culture anymore. If everyone's canceled, nobody's canceled, right? And I totally share your sentiments about people not wanting to run because, Mm -hmm. you know, know, if you run, people are going to go through every single tweet you've ever made, every single post you've ever made. Um, You could have your life destroyed in a second. Mm -hmm. But because cancel culture is becoming so extreme, I think that it's actually going to lose some of its credibility, which could be a really good thing because – We're at the point where people are actually really scared not even to just run for office but to but to say their opinions like in the workplace or with their friends it's really sad and um i guess that gives me a little hope that there is a silent a major that there is a silent majority that's larger than it seems
0: i hope so because i think it was the first time i've ever even began to disagree with greg gutfeld i was like oh greg don't say that we're here i promise you we're not gone um but yeah so just to to kind of like wrap things up i'm so thankful for your time um today back to the new the new book because um i just want to tell you i know a lot of people um who entrepreneurs, and they're just starting out, and they, you know, they want to write a book, whatever, so can you tell me about, like, your process? I know this isn't your first time. It's not your first rodeo writing a book, but, like, about your inspiration, your process, um, and, you know, what readers can expect also um, when they pick up a copy of The Liberal Invasion of Red State America. Sure.
1: So I've always written about topics that I am especially passionate about. For me, it's not the medium, it's the message. So I don't care if I'm writing a book or giving a speech or writing articles. I'm not really a writer. You know, I'm a somebody who wants to interact with policy and politics. That's what drives me to write these books. It's not the act of writing a book, it's Mm -hmm. digging into the data and getting the message out that's driving me forward. And um, this domestic migration trend is something that I think people totally missed for the last decade while it was happening. Mm -hmm. And it could be a serious problem for Republicans now. I mean, people laugh when I say this, but Texas could really become a blue state. Our demographics down here right now are almost identical to California's in the early 90s before Democrats began their winning streak. I mean, people in our age group don't realize California used to be a deep red state, it was a conservative bastion. And of course, now it's just completely left wing. If Texas goes that way, and it looks like it is, Republicans may never win another presidential election, again, at least not in the party's current form, they'd have to do some serious changing. So the book is, is sort of a warning to the GOP, but more than that, I dig into the data to show, not only could this happen, it's already happening. Mm -hmm. And it's not just happening, by the way, in the big cities, that's where, you know, most of the people are moving to cities like Dallas, Austin, and Houston. But Mm -hmm. it's actually happening in rural areas as well. Um, But interestingly, in rural areas more of the conservative people are moving. So it's, it's actually also a story. It's not just a story of blue state versus red states. It's a story of the rural-urban divide. And in a lot of states like Texas, Oklahoma, Florida, and Utah, we're actually seeing the cities get a lot more blue while the countryside is getting a lot more red and even the suburban areas. So it's setting up a really polarized environment at
0: the state level. Things are, getting, things are just so different now. I mean we'll see what happens. But I mean, all I know is that enough liberal friends of mine talk about how awesome Austin, Texas is. And I'm like, uh oh, what's going the on here? Guy. I hated Texas two years ago. I
1: will, I will add about my book. Um, I do also tell readers what they can do to keep their home states intact. Oh. Actions that all of us can take to reach out to our neighbors who may be new in town and show them why our communities are the way they are. And I think that's really key, is communication. That's how we're going to save the nation, is by starting to talk to each other. Because right now, nobody's talking to each other. Everyone's pissed off, everyone's hyper-polarized, and nothing's ever going to get done that way.
0: No, not at all. Um, I think that's a great message. We really do need to start talking to each other. Uh, The media is not helping. Um, Yeah, talk to your neighbor. And when you go out and you do talk to people, you realize even if you are polarized that people are much more respectful for the most part. Um, If you're lucky enough to live in an area that's safe right now, (laughs) people are pretty respectful of each other's differences. So I love that message on how to save save our red states.
1: (laughs) And blue states too. I mean, blue states states are becoming... You know, they're losing their tax paying base. They're being hollowed out. These places um, used to be wonderful. New York City, I still think is the best city in the country. I still think it can be saved. So we can't yeah. give up on our blue cities and states either. No,
0: no. Well, yeah. And plus we need, we need like opposite opinions. We just don't need to be so hyper polarized. Exactly. That's exactly um, right. Um, well, Kristen, thank you so much. And congratulations again on the, on the new book.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, thanks.